We're going to be in Genesis this morning, so if you have your scripture journal, you can use that if you'd like. If you don't know me, my name's Tyler, one of the pastors here. Hi. Hi. Normally, Matt would be preaching, but we're at one of the most difficult passages of Genesis, so... uh, Just kidding. No, but in all seriousness, this morning we have come to chapter 34 of Genesis. We've been studying through Genesis. We're in the story of of Jacob and his family. Uh, This is a sad, tragic, dark story in the life of Jacob. And I think if, if I was planning what to preach this morning, if we were planning on a topical series, this passage probably wouldn't make it in there. And that's exactly why we preach through books of the Bible here. That's why we go chapter through chapter. We don't just skip over the hard parts or pick the spots that Tyler likes to preach from the most. Um, As we prepare to hear from it this morning, uh, a passage that's been encouraging to me is Romans 15. Go ahead and put that up on the screen. This is Paul writing about Scripture. It's just a little parenthetical point that Paul makes about Scripture and the use of it. And I think it's helpful for us this morning. He says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, instruction that would be encouraged by the scripture and that we would have hope. So this morning, as we wrestle with a difficult passage, as we go through a dark point in Jacob's life, I would encourage you to keep that in mind. All right, Lord, what are you saying to us? What was this, why was this written for our instruction and our encouragement and our hope? What does God have to say to us this morning? All right, Ruth, if you wouldn't mind, come on up. She's going to start actually in chapter 33 to give us a little bit of the backstory. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob had heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. 
Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city." On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you as your children. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have ears to hear what you would teach us. God, we believe that your word is living and it's active. We believe that what you have this morning for us is for our instruction, our encouragement, and our hope. Lord, I pray that you would help us to lean in and press into hard things. Help us to hear from your spirit this morning and to be changed. Help us to be built up. Help us to be conformed, to be more like Jesus through our study this morning. Lord, I pray that I would speak words that are honoring to you, and I pray that the hearts of all of us that are listening to your word, God, would be stirred up toward you. Lord, we love you. We want to serve you. We want to hear from you. That's why we're here this morning. God, I ask you to do something supernatural now. I pray this wouldn't just be a a little Bible lesson or a story or even just a teaching time. But God, I pray that our hearts would be changed. I pray that we'd see you a little bit more clearly. 
pray that we would love you more than we do now. And I pray that we would give you all the glory and all the praise and all the honor, for you deserve it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, before we go any further, as we start, I just want to address the horrific sin that was committed against Dinah in this passage. Dinah was the victim of an especially wicked, terrible sin. She was physically taken and then raped and then held by her assaulter. I'm increasingly aware that it's more than likely that almost everyone in this room, every family in some way has been impacted, either directly or indirectly, by sexual sin like this, by assault, by trauma. If you've personally been assaulted or mistreated in a way like this, this passage may stir up, just from reading it, may stir up all kinds of feelings or emotions or thoughts, maybe even confusion in some ways. And I want to start by saying that's okay. God sees you this morning. God knows you. God knows what you've been through. And he knows what you're processing right now. He made you. He created you. His heart is for you. You're his child and you're made in his image. I also want to say that it was not your fault. No matter what your abuser may have said, no matter what others may have said to you, maybe even what you try to say to yourself, I want you to hear this. It was not your fault. You were sinned against. You were sinned against. It's easy or maybe tempting for us to think as, of God as being removed from situations when we read like what happened to Dinah here. It can be tempting for us to think of God as being indifferent or just not caring about sin or trauma like this. But I want to speak truth in saying that God knows the horror of sin. He knows it personally. He's felt it. And ultimately, every sin committed and the entire universe is ultimately against him. And at this very moment, he is presently aware of every sin that has ever been committed or will be committed. And he's grieved by it. And it angers him. He feels it more deeply even than we can. His holiness is uniquely attacked by sin. One of the difficult parts with a passage like this, and I think even in our lives we've all struggled to some extent, is wrestling with God's sovereignty. We believe God is in control. We believe that God is powerful. He can do anything. He can stop anything. And yet we read a passage like this this morning. God could have protected Dinah. And God did not. Certainly, God prevents all kinds of wickedness from happening to us on a daily basis, many of which we probably don't even know exist. But sometimes he lets terrible, awful, and even life-changing things happen to his children. 
Why is a question that we often ask and we want an answer to, but most of the time we don't get the satisfaction of hearing. God doesn't owe us the why, but we can still trust him. We can still trust in his goodness. We can still trust in his power because we know that he is good and we know that he is holy and we believe that he is in control of everything. And even when we don't know the why, we can say that God will bring perfect and complete healing. God will bring perfect and complete justice and even vengeance for every sin that's been committed, every crime that has been done. In this story, in Genesis 34, true justice is not served. It's just not. If you've been the victim of sexual sin, maybe you feel lack of justice even more strongly. Maybe you're aware how just wrongs don't feel like they're actually righted. I want to encourage you this morning to take heart that God will permanently, permanently, perfectly, effectively judge and pour out wrath against every wrong that has been done. He will truly right every wrong. In the proportion of the wrong that was done, God will dole out justice. No scale will be out of balance. God knows his children. He knows you, he sees you, and he loves you. If you have been sinned against sexually like this, most times it is actually helpful to seek counsel, to seek community. You don't have to carry this on your own. You're not alone. You weren't built by God to handle this alone. God has given you a community of believers to help for situations like this. And if you haven't sought counseling before, I really would like to encourage you to consider if that might helpful, might be helpful to you. If you don't know where to start, you can come to me, you can come to Jordan, you can come to Matt. As pastors, just to talk, to help, to figure out what a next step could be. We also have relationships with Christian counselors in the area. The church can even help pay for that. We also have people even in our congregation in Christ Church that are trained and that would love to talk with you or help you in any way. We do want to come alongside you in any way that is helpful. If you're young, if you're old, if you're a man, if you're a woman, you don't have to carry this alone. And maybe you're not the victim of sexual sin directly, but maybe you know someone who is. I want to encourage you this morning, be ready to listen. Be prepared. If you haven't yet talked with someone or closely known someone who's experienced this type of sin or trauma, you probably will. And in that moment, when you're speaking with your friend or your loved one, I want to encourage you to listen. Be tender. Be slow to speak. Be prepared to mourn and to weep and to be patient. Encourage your brother or your sister who Jesus is. Speak truth. Remind them of his heart, of his love for them, of his care for them. Church, it's what we're called to do is to point each other to Jesus, to help each other, to lift one another up, to carry each other's burdens. Jesus gave us his body, his body, as we struggle and fight and war in this world full of sin. Before we continue on, I just want to pray for us this morning. 
to that end. Holy God, we know that sin grieves you. And we know that especially sin like this grieves you and grieves your heart. God, we feel the weight of it. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters that can hear me now, that have been wronged, that have been hurt, that have been the victim. Lord, I pray that you would bring healing. I pray that they would feel your presence, that they would feel your tenderness and your love. They would also feel your strength and know that you are powerful, you are mighty, and you will do justly in the end. God, I pray that you would help us as your church, that we would be a church that loves to listen, that loves to pick up each other, that loves to encourage one another. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us gifts that we need to help one another. Lord, I pray that you'd bring healing. Lord, I pray that you'd bring restoration. Lord, we love you. We want to live for you. Help us to have faith. Help us to have belief. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, let's get back to Jacob. Before we launch into chapter 34, officially, we're going to back up just a little bit. That's why Ruth read a little bit earlier. I want to recap where we are in Jacob's life at this point. Last week, in chapter 33, Jacob had a high point. Who remembers what that was? What happened in Jacob's life? Reconciliation with his brother. brother. Yeah, right before he was going out to his brother, a couple weeks ago, we saw Jacob pray. It seemed like his heart was stirred in faith. And then he had this goofy wrestling thing with a man from God where his hip was touched and, and Jacob was forced to not be able to run away, forced not to be able to fight. And we see Jacob in chapter 33, it seems like, responding faithfully. He meets his brother head on. Jacob miraculously weeps over his brother, is excited to see him, doesn't come after him with vengeance. It seems like everything's going really well. Jacob has maybe finally made the turn from being the conniving, deceitful, uh, selfish person that we've seen so far to someone who's trusting God more, someone that's faithfully walking in the direction of the promise that God has made for him. Well, unfortunately, halfway through chapter 33, the chapter we were in last week, seems like old Jacob comes out a little bit. In verse 12, Esau, after they've hugged it out a whole bunch and given each other a whole bunch of camels and all that kind of stuff, Esau says, hey, Jacob, how about we travel together back to where I'm from, to Seir? I'm going back down south after meeting you. I've got plenty of space. Why don't you guys come down with me? And Jacob, we don't really know exactly why, but more than likely he's still afraid of his brother. He's still a little worried about Esau maybe changing his mind. And in his fear, he decides that instead of telling Jacob, no, I'm going to go up north instead, he tells Esau, well, I will join you, but how about you go ahead first? I've got little kids, they're sickly, they can't walk well, they'll die, you know, you don't want to deal with that. We'll come join you. Um, you know, in a week's time or something like that. We'll work our way down after you. And Esau's like, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. We'll meet you down there. No problem. 
And as soon as Esau is over the horizon, Jacob and his family turn around and go in the opposite direction. Old Jacob's back. He's using deceit to trick his brother. I'm sure Esau was super happy when that happened. Using deceit to trick his brother because he was afraid of what his brother might do. So even though Jacob is seeing God and becoming faithful, he also has a little bit of old, old man coming in. And as I was thinking on this, I wonder if it'd be worth just to pause for a moment and consider, can't we relate to the struggle between the old us and the new us? Haven't we had experiences with God where it seems like we're full on faith and we're trusting him and we believe what he says, and maybe we even feel God's presence more near than we have in the past. We've seen some of his blessings. We're going well. And then something happens, something scary, something that really gets at our heart that makes us shake a little bit. And our knee-jerk reaction is to take control of the situation. Quick, do something. Resort to our old ways. Somehow control it. Maybe God's not in control after all. Maybe you obsess over staying healthy to make sure you don't get sick, to make sure your body lasts as long as it can. Maybe you micromanage a project to ensure that it gets done perfectly at work or at home. Maybe you even resort to manipulating people around you to make sure that they do just what you want. If you feel insecure, you feel worried, you use guilt or shame. Sometimes we even do that with our children, at least tempted to. I want my children to be obedient. I want them to turn out well. And so in order to make them do what I want, I use words like, I'm so disappointed in you. Or you should be ashamed of yourself to get them to act the right way. Just like Jacob, we have seen God's faithfulness. We've experienced his presence. We know his promises. And yet, oftentimes, panic can cause us to revert to trying to control situations ourselves. I'm sure we all have different ways of doing that, but I think, I think you can probably bring to mind some ways that maybe you do that. I want to remind you this morning that God doesn't need your help. He has it under control. He is still faithful. When we are the most scared is when we most want control, but that's when we most need to press into faith. When my fear comes in, and all these doubts and worries come into my head. That's the moment right then when I need to the most press in to who God is and believe in who he is and what he's done. In thinking about this, I was like, what could Jacob have done in this situation to help build his faith? Say in that moment, he's struck with fear. Esau says, hey, come down with me. He doesn't really want to do that. He's worried about what will happen. And if he was able to just pause, freeze the time for a moment, what could Jacob have done? We just saw him do it a couple of chapters earlier. Did anything come to mind to you of what Jacob could do to help stir his faith in that moment? Yeah, he could remember God's promises. He could speak out God's promises, just like we saw in his prayer. Do you remember that? God, you are the God of my father. You are the God that made a promise to me. You are the God that's faithful. You said you're going to bless me. You said that my people will be a multitude. And if that's true, then I have to believe that you're not going to let me be destroyed by my brother. That would stir up his faith for sure. Maybe he could look back at God's works. God, you have preserved me. I was running away from my brother. I had nothing at all to my name. I've had to run away from my father-in-law. 
I'm being wandering in the desert, and you still have protected me. You've provided for me. In fact, you've given me riches and wealth that I had no right to have. That can build his faith. And I think you know where I'm going with this. That's the same for us. We can do the exact same thing. Maybe even almost more so because we have way more of God's word revealed to us than Jacob did at that time. We know God's character. We know who he is. We know what he's capable of. We have promises that are directly to us in his words. And so in those moments where you're a little bit afraid or you're tempted to try to grab control, hurry up, I gotta manage this, we can run to God's promises and say, wait, I'm tempted to manage this, but I know that you have it. I know that you are the God that created the universe. I know you are the God that called me out before I was even born. I know you are the God that will protect me, that will care for me, and that will work your good purposes. I know you will do that. And I believe in that moment, that's one of the best things we can do to build our faith to trust God instead of resorting back to the way that we would have acted before. I would encourage you to let the all-powerful God govern your life. Let him run it. Let him rule it. He's capable and he's power. Full. He won't fail you. So that's chapter 33. Chapter 33 to 34, the end of 33 to the beginning of 34, is something like a 10-year time period, at least. It's a long time. It's longer than Christ Church has even existed, is that little white space at the end of 33 to the beginning of 34. And we get one little story that's told to us that happens over that 10-year time period. One story that maybe took place over... I don't know, four days, a week, something like that. And so before we launch, I was just thinking, if I was going to tell one story to encapsulate Christ Church in the last 10 years, what story would I pick? What one thing would I want to write down so that everybody in the future knows this is who Christ Church was over these last 10 years together? Maybe call out some picnics or some go events that we had, maybe describe peoples whose lives were changed or some of the doctrines that we came to love and enjoy or the way that God worked in our church in providing for us, how we grew, how we loved him more, how we were faithful, might be some of the stories that I would tell. But God, in his infinite wisdom, through Moses, wrote down one story, and it is the worst of the worst. It is a dark story. He's capturing this whole 10-year period in Canaan. The story of Jacob, the patriarch, the entire nation of Israel is wrapped up in this family right now. And he tells us the worst of the worst story. In fact, it's so dark, there actually is not a single mention of God in this entire passage. God's name isn't mentioned. No one has faith in God. God's not even mentioned in passing by Moses, the narrator. God is devoid in this passage completely. It's as if the very worst story of the whole time period was selected to teach us what it looks like when God's hand is removed. We see God with Jacob in 33. Spoiler, we're going to see God with Jacob in 35. But in chapter 34, it's like we're in a dark period. This is what it looks like for people when God is not in the picture. This is what it looks like for people when they are not faithful, not calling on, and when God is not actively intervening in the lives of people. And that's chapter 34. So Dinah is the daughter of Jacob. Right off the bat, Moses tells us something sort of interesting about Dinah. Most of the time, it would be written in texts like this. Now, Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. 
It's how it would go. But instead, it starts out how? Dinah, the daughter of Leah. The daughter of Leah. Why do you think Moses said that? What is significant about the daughter of Leah in there? You can shout it out. It's his only daughter. Leah, was that the wife that Jacob loved or not? Not. Not. If you remember from the previous chapter when Jacob is sending out his family to go meet meet Esau, remember he he divvies them up into groups and he sends them with a little bit of space. He's worried that, well, if Esau attacks the first group, maybe he won't get all the way through all the groups. He sends out his servants first. Who's the second group that he sends out? Do you remember? Leah and her family. So Leah and her children. Dinah would certainly have been in that group. You see, Dinah is the daughter of the wife that Jacob didn't want and that we're told repeatedly doesn't love. At the very least, he's indifferent toward her. The fact that Dinah goes out like she does is actually another indication that she probably really isn't loved or protected by her father or her family well. It would be strange for a young girl like this, 13, 14, 15 years old, to be sent out among pagans without any male bodyguard or family member at all. And yet Dinah goes out. Maybe Jacob didn't know about it. We don't know for sure. But it doesn't seem like he is exercising care or love or oversight for her. And maybe we could even say that why would Dinah go out in the first place to see the women of the land? Was it perhaps that she was unloved, that she was looking for something better than the family that she was in? In any case, Dinah goes out and she's attacked. She's attacked by Shechem. He's a pagan man that has a lot of power in the nearby city. He lusts after her. He grabs her. He rapes her. And then he holds on to her. She has to stay in his house. And strangely enough, Shechem's heart is still drawn to Dinah. He wants her to be his wife. So he tells his even more powerful dad, hey, dad, get this girl for my wife. I want her to be, I want her to be mine. In verse 5, Jacob hears what has happened to Dinah. The news has come to him, either directly or indirectly, but he remains silent. Instead, he just sits there and waits for his sons to come in from the field. And his sons come in from the field. And remember, the sons that are described taking action in this story, they are also sons of Leah. Dinah is their sister. They know what it feels like to not be as loved by Jacob. And their hearts, unlike Jacob's, it seems, are moved strongly to protect, to defend, to seek vengeance for their sister. Maybe they're even fueled by Jacob's inaction a little bit, but they choose to seek vengeance on their own. They're not trusting God to work justice. Like I said, God's name isn't even mentioned here. And they decide to hatch this clever plan, and Moses tells us that they weren't planning to be honest from the very beginning. They were planning to be deceitful. They were planning to lie. They probably learned this from their old man. They probably could have chosen a hundred ways to deceive Hamor and Shechem, but what do they use? The boys specifically use the sacred sign of circumcision to murder these people. They use the sign of God's covenant, of God's love, of God's blessing on these people, the sign that God was going to bless all the nations. They use that to deceive Shechem and his entire city and to ultimately murder and plunder. The symbol of God's love and favor and grace and mercy was mutilated into a symbol of hate, deception, wrath, and destruction. 
I think it's fair to say that it seems that Jacob's sons are willing to do anything to accomplish the goal of vengeance. Instead of looking to God, they try to take a shortcut. I think our hearts could at least identify with them in wanting there to be justice, in wanting there to be vengeance, and wanting to do something because there was a terrible wrong that had been done. So in a sense, their destination was right, or at least okay, but the route they took to get there was sort of them, like them trying to take a shortcut. It reminded me of a story, I think it was this summer or maybe last, we went to Raystown Lake with the Hivelys, and I'm driving my truck and I'm pulling jet ski trailer behind me. Wayne has his truck. He's pulling a boat behind him. We're going to Raystown, and we get to this kind of section. I'm looking at the map on Google, and we're like, oh, we're close by. That's awesome, but we need to be in this parking lot or section over here. And I'm looking at the Google map, and it looks like this. We're here. We got to go like this and land right here. And it's like going to be like a 30-minute drive or something like that. Like, what the heck? Why, is, why are we going like that? I can clearly see there's a road from here to here. There's a road. Connects right through it. It's got a name and everything. But Google Maps is routing me like this, around and around. And so looking at my map, Casey, my co-pilot as well, we're like, well, we're going to take this road. It's shorter. Something's wrong with the map. I don't know what's with that. This is a shortcut. Looks like it'll take us only a couple minutes to get there instead of taking 30 minutes to go around. And so we start driving in that direction. We get to the edge of where Google has told us to make the turn. And we're not making the turn. We're going to go straight. There's a shortcut. And we get there, and we get to this section where all of a sudden the paved road stops, and there's a whole bunch of signs all lined up on trees. And they say, do not enter. Stop. Basically, like, this is not a shortcut. If you have trailers, they'll get stuck. You're going over a mountain. It's not a type of road you want to be on. Just like, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. We didn't do it. I know you're looking for an exciting end. It's not that exciting. The point is, though, the point is, it seemed like a great shortcut. Turns out, I think it was going like over the mountain and there was not actually a real road there. It was like a trail and all this stuff. It seemed like a great way to get where we were going. We're going on vacation. We're going to the lake. This will get us there faster. There's nothing wrong with going to the lake. But we were trying to take a shortcut to get there that wasn't prescribed by, easy on the analogy, by Google Maps, who knows more than I do in that moment, right? <laughs> I think in a similar way, Jacob's brothers are trying to take a shortcut. And I wonder, do we ever try to take shortcuts around God in the same way? Do we have a noble or a right end goal? But the way we get there, we don't really like the way it seems like God's doing it. Or we don't really understand why he would do it that way. So instead, well, this is shorter. I'll take this direction instead. It's a couple examples. Something like, we want to provide for our family, and so we need to get ahead in our job. So in order to do that, we work crazy hours, and we neglect our children or our wife. Maybe you want to keep your children from hearing curse words or smelling bad smells, so you avoid interacting with messy people altogether. Maybe you want to accomplish so much for God's kingdom, and you have so much good things for you to do, that you neglect to rest as God has prescribed for you to do. Maybe you want to hold the perfect theological stance so you promote disunity in Jesus' church by just avoiding all those other types of Christians who don't see eye to eye with you in every way. Maybe you want politics and the government to honor God so you use hateful words toward another God-made image bearer to do it. Church, God will accomplish all of his good purposes 
And he doesn't need us to take shortcuts in order to do it. It might look like a better way to us. It might seem straighter. It might seem smarter. But I can assure you it's not. God is the all-knowing, all-powerful God. He orchestrates and holds the entire universe together. He knows what he's doing. And so what can we do when we're tempted to take a shortcut? Well, I think one of the things we can do is we can just remind ourselves of truth. Again, we can remind ourselves who God is. He has me. He's held me. He's set every step that I've taken in my life up until this point. He has a plan for me. He has a good purpose that he's working together. He sees the entire picture, past eternity and future eternity, and every single person, every soul, every interaction, every conversation. His way is going to be the best way. I think in community, we can remind each other of that. I think that can be helpful for us. Remember, this seems right to you, friend, but let me tell you who God is. Let me remind you what he's done. Let me remind you what he's going to do. I think something else that can help us when we're tempted to take a shortcut is just to remember our own limitations. Like me looking at the map. All right, who knows more right now? Is it Google, who's got you know, data from thousands of users and has been inundated with data points saying, don't go in this direction? Or is it me, who's never been here before and sees a little straight line in gray and thinks that that would be the better way to go? I think in the same way, we can remind ourselves, I'm limited. I don't have all the information. I can't make the best decision. But God can. And we can trust him in that. He is faithful. He is powerful. We can trust his ways. Well, finally, closing out chapter 34, in the aftermath of his daughter being brutally assaulted, his sons unjustly murdering and plundering an entire people, and the holy sign of circumcision being defiled, Jacob finally speaks. We get the only words from Jacob in this entire chapter. In verse 30, this is what he says. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. That's all he says. He's worried for retaliation against him. He doesn't seem concerned with his daughter being attacked or taken. He doesn't seem to be concerned with his sons murdering maybe thousands of people, stealing children and women of that city, plundering it, taking what wasn't theirs. He doesn't seem concerned with the fact that his sons have defiled the holy sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. He's just worried that he might be destroyed. This isn't a good look for the patriarch. He's only worried about retaliation against himself, and that's it. In closing of chapter 34, I think I'd have to say this has to be one of the darkest points in Scripture. This is the entire nation of Israel. This is all of them in this family, living godlessly, sinfully, doing what's right in their own eyes. And in that, I think it's helpful to remember what we saw in the beginning. This was written for our instruction and our encouragement that we would have hope. What we just read was for our instruction and our encouragement so that we could have hope. So to close it out, I have three points that, that I think are helpful for us and important for us. Number one, 
We are slaves to sin. As I already mentioned, this chapter highlights the state of mankind apart from God. We really get a front row seat into what it looks like for man to do what's right in his own eyes. Without faith in God, without direction from God, without intervention from God, we see what man is actually made of. Proverbs 14.12 says this. I think we have it on the screen. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to what? Death. There is a way that seems right to a man. Everyone in this story is doing what seems right to them. They're doing the thing that seems logical or what their heart is telling them to do or what their experience is telling them to do. Without God, it seems right to Shechem to lust after Dinah and use his power to abuse her. Without God, it seems right to Dinah's brothers to blaspheme God's covenant to accomplish their goal. It seems right to them to not just kill the perpetrator, but an entire city. It seems right to them to steal women as possessions and take little children. Without God, it seems right to Jacob to deceive his brother to save himself, to mistreat and despise his wife and children because they are not his preference. It seems right to him to be indifferent when his child is abused, and it seems right to him to go to any length to protect himself and his interests. Without God, it seems right to look at porn to satisfy your lust. Without God, it seems right to gossip about that woman that has hurt you. Without God, it seems right to lash out in anger at your children when they disappoint you. Without God, it seems right to use alcohol or drugs to dull your pain. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Do you hear what this means? Do you hear what this passage is telling us? What it's preaching to us? We cannot trust ourselves. We can't trust even what's in our own hearts. We can't trust our, our opinions or our thoughts or our experiences. They will deceive us. Our hearts will deceive us. We will be doing what we think is right and it actually be wrong. The side that we think is up is actually down. And we see that on this display in this story that we had this morning. And what's worse than that is we don't know another way. Jacob's family didn't know another way. They were just doing what seemed right to them. And we see sin doing what sin does is that it just escalates and builds one on top of the other. It's like they're trying to fix one wrong by using some more sin, which makes it even a bigger wrong. And so that gets retaliated against with another wrong and it pushes out into other people. It pushes out into family members. It destroys lives. That's what sin does. That's what our hearts are defaulting to do. I have not the best picture in the entire world, but say this is what we're trying to look like, a nice white rag or cloth like this. And I give you the job of, I want you to clean up this cloth to make it look like that. This is one that I've used to clean who knows what. It smells pretty terrible. It's got stains on it and grease and oil and all kinds of nastiness. This is supposed to be white. This is supposed to be clean. It obviously represents us with our sin. And I say, okay, now here's the job. I only have one thing that you can use to clean this up. You have to use black paint to clean up this rag and make it white again. I don't care how you do it. You can dip the corners in if you want, or you can dump it all out or just whirl it around inside. And the more that I try to clean up this rag, the more I try to get these spots out by using the black paint, the blacker and darker and stinkier and thicker that it gets. 
And I can try to do maybe some designs on it to, to make it be an optical illusion that it, that it looks white to you, but it just gets worse. And that's the same thing that sin does. We try to fix sin with sin. It just gets uglier. It just gets messier. It just gets more pervasive. And that's point number two, is that sin always destroys. Sin always destroys. There is no safe sin. It's a cancer. We're told by the world, we're told by Satan, and even our own hearts, that we can hold on to just maybe a little, a little tiny sin. This little one that I just pull out every now and then that I enjoy that I cuddle, that I keep over here in the corner, and other people don't have to know about it. It doesn't have to hurt anybody else. Scripture is clear, God is clear, that there is no such thing. It's like keeping only a small cancerous brain tumor. Just a little bit. It's just in one corner of my brain. But it'll spread. It'll disease the rest of the good tissue. It'll spread to the rest of my body. It'll impact my functions and my abilities. Sin is the same way. And what's worse than just sin destroying us in our lives and the people that we know on earth? Romans 1.18 says plainly, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ultimately, our sin is against God, and it will destroy you in this world. It'll cause you pain in this world. It'll spread and hurt other people. But even more than that is it'll destroy you for eternity because our sin is against a holy God, a holy God who cannot stand the presence of sin, and he will not stand the presence of sin for eternity. He will judge it. He will pour down wrath on every wrong that's been done, on every person that has done that wrong. There's only one natural end to sin, church. It's complete destruction under God's wrath. That is where sin leads. Every sin. And we see that's exactly what Jacob's family is facing. What does Jacob say at the end? Almost prophetically, he says, I shall be destroyed, I and my household. He's, of course, not saying it for the exact same reasons that we are. But it is true. And that is where they are headed. You almost would expect the next wave, chapter 35, would be, so all the people of Canaan came and they wiped out Jacob and his family because they had murdered the Shechemites and done a terrible thing. It feels like this is the last straw. It feels like God certainly should annihilate these people and just start over again. Aren't you kind of almost rooting for flood 2.0? All right, you can't do the flood, the rainbow, I get that. But maybe we'll do like a volcano or hail or earth just open up or something. Start off with... Some new people or make dogs made in the image of people or something. It feels like Jacob and his family are just doing everything wrong. God appears to him, he speaks to them, and they turn away. It feels like clearly Jacob is not holding up his end of the deal, right? Wrong. You see, Jacob has no end of the deal. Spoilers for verse 30, or chapter 35, God speaks to Jacob again and blesses him even more. You see, God is the one that made the promises. God is the one that made the covenant. 
God is the one who has both ends of the deal. God is the one that's holding up his end and his end of the deal. God is the one that called Abraham out and will accomplish his good purposes. God's salvation for Israel, listen to this, God's salvation for Israel does not depend on Jacob. And God's salvation for you does not depend on you. That's the point of 34. That's the point of what we've just read, I believe. Jacob's salvation is not based on how good he is or what he's done. It's based on who God is and what God has done. And how is that possible? It's possible because Jesus Christ was perfect. Jesus Christ lived the life that we couldn't without sin. And through him, God has made a way that if we believe in Jesus, then all the sin that we have committed, all the wrongs that we have done, all the wrath that we rightly deserve to bear is instead placed off of us and placed onto Jesus on our behalf. So that we can stand before God as holy and as righteous, despite the fact that we live like Jacob and his family in chapter 34. Jesus has made a way for salvation for Jacob and for you and for me. God's salvation for you does not depend on you. It depends on Jesus. We mentioned that all sin will be repaid in full. We saw that Jacob, or we saw that Jacob's sons say to Shechem, effectively, you're going to pay for what you've done. And in the gospel, we hear God say, I'm going to pay for what you've done. Church, either Jesus is going to pay for your sins or you will. These are the only options, Jesus or you. And I think Genesis 34 reminds us who we are in Jesus. It reminds us what we deserve and then what we've been freed from. And all we have to do is believe. That's it. We have no end of the deal. We don't have to make ourselves righteous. We don't have to clean up this stinky rag in order for God to accept us. This morning, if talking about our sin, our sin nature, what we deserve, if that resonated with you, if your heart was pricked or stirred, if you had a moment of fear of, oh, that's what I deserve, then that's good and that is right. And I would encourage you this morning, believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus to pay the penalty for your sins so that you don't have to. There is an invitation that is open to you right now. It might not be open tomorrow. If your heart is stirred by what you've heard this morning, the good news of God offering salvation through the Son, then I want to encourage you, believe in him. Believe in him. You can talk to me. You can talk to many of the people gathered around here. We'd love to tell you more of who Jesus is. We'd love to tell you what he can do for you. We'd love to fill out any questions that you have about what it means for God to not give you the wrath that you deserve. Instead, give it to Jesus. It's why we're here. It's why I'm here. It's why we're singing to this God is because he's offered us great news. And then I want to encourage you this morning, if Jesus has saved you, if you stand before him right now and you say, hallelujah, I'm free. I don't have to pay for my own sin. 
then I hope this just makes you want to worship him. I hope this doesn't just feel like an old hat or, oh boy, I've heard that sermon before. I hope this stirs up all kinds of feelings and emotions and love and joy for a God who would look on someone like Jacob and still bless him. Not because he's unrighteous, but because his righteousness has been fulfilled by judging his son on your behalf. If that's your story this morning, then I want to encourage you, let your heart overflow with joy. As we sing in a few moments, I pray that you can sing out, full of faith. This is the God who saved me. This is the wrath that I deserve that he bore on my behalf. And I can be free and I can be, I can be clean all because of Jesus. In a moment, we're going to sing, and as we do so, I'm going to go to the back. Casey is as well. I think Bethany will also. If you would just like prayer over anything that we've talked about this morning, over everything we've heard this morning from God's word, I would encourage you, come on back. Get prayer. Talk to us if you want to. Talk with someone else around here. Get prayer for one another. If God is poking or prodding in your heart, you're saying, I'm not sure if I believe in Jesus. It's something I want to do. Well, come back and talk with us. We'd love, we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to help you in any way that we possibly can. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your kindness to us. I thank you for your revelation that you don't only tell us who you are, but you rightly tell us who we are. I thank you that you love us so much that you won't you won't leave us just to suffer under your wrath, but you have offered your son to save us. Lord, I pray for anything you're doing in our hearts now, whether it bring healing or bring restoration or peace or conviction. Lord, I pray that you would bring that work to completion. It's by the name of Jesus that I pray and in the power of the Holy Spirit who is working in us. Amen. <laughs>